Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. This is Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I am your host, Teresa Signorelli. And we are bringing you information about the five areas of child development, and that is physical, intellectual, social, emotional, emotional, and moral, so parents can empower their children to thrive. Now, today's Brain and Toyland segment um, is actually the second in a series that we're having on feeding development. Um, and today, the segment is called Feeding Development 201, Sippy Cups, Bottles, and Straws, Oh My. And we have Diane Barr, who is returning as our guest. Um, she was here about a month ago doing um, a similar program, and we call that Feeding 101, with the baby food jars don't tell you. And in that segment, Diane spoke to us about feeding skills from birth to 12 months of age. So today we have Diane back, as I said, and she's going to talk to us about feeding development in children from age the age of 12 months to 24 months. So Diane, welcome back. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you for having me. Okay, yeah, thank you so much. Well, the last show was really, really informative, and there's, there is so much to know, so we asked you to come back. Uh, but before we get into the content, uh, for our new viewers, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. I'm a speech-language pathologist specifically trained in feeding therapy, and I have over 30 years of experience, actually about 35 years of experience. I've authored two books. Uh, a textbook, Oral Motor Assessment and Treatment, Ages and Stages, and uh, the one we'll be talking about today, a book for parents and professionals called Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That, Everything from Bottles and Breathing to Healthy Speech Development. I've taught undergraduate, graduate, continuing education, and parent education courses. I'm also the co-owner of Ages and Stages, which is a resources company for parents and professionals on the topics of feeding, speech, and mouth function. Our mission at Ages and Stages is to provide the best possible feeding, speech, and mouth development information for families and professionals. And our goal is to, pre to prevent feeding, speech, and mouth development problems when possible by helping parents, and professionals keep children on track developmentally. Okay, great. And so um, maybe also before we get into what happens in that 12 to 24-month range, let's talk about maybe a common question you often have parents ask you. Well, when parents come to me with feeding problem, problems, and that's what we're going to try to prevent by doing this program and with the book, um, they often say, why didn't my pediatrician tell me about this? And they're mad at their pediatrician when they come to see me. Um, and what I explain to parents, and one of the things we'll talk about today, is that your child's pediatrician is your child's general doctor. They know something about feeding. They know enough to get you started with feeding at different ages. They know something about communication. 
But that's not their area of expertise because they can't know everything. Right, right. So um, what about um, talking about what parents are often surprised to learn about? Okay. Parents are often surprised to learn that we as feeding therapists have access to developmental feeding information that they and their pediatricians don't have. This is one of the main reasons that I wrote my parent professional book and created our website. My goal is to really get the information that we use as feeding therapists out there to the general public. Right. And so, as you said, pediatricians are, um, they know a lot and they're very important and they're often the first person a family meets. Um, But there's a limit to anybody's expertise and then that's why we have specialists. So knowing about... Um, feeding specialists who more often than not are speech-language pathologists, that um, that's a good piece of information to parents, uh, for parents who um, have questions about um, how their children are advancing in their feeding skills. Right. So um, so let's talk about feeding skills. Last, um, it was in October when you were here, and as we said, you spoke about the birth to 12-month range. Let's Let's talk about that. 20, I'm sorry, that 12 to 24-month period. What can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, the 12 to 24-month period is really a time for refinement of feeding skills. Um, most of the feeding skills, as we discussed last time, began in the first year. And the details I'm going to summarize here can be found in a checklist in my book, Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That. Um, I created the checklist along with detailed descriptions of the information we discuss, we're discussing in the book so parents and pediatricians would have access to the information that we as feeding therapists have. So uh, we'll start with the 12 to 15-month period. Uh, during that time, a child can pick up small pieces of food with a thumb and index finger. The child begins to self-feed with a spoon. You know, they might turn it over on the way to the mouth, kind of like we sometimes lick ice cream off a spoon. They begin to use this, and this is really important, they begin to use a mature swallowing pattern where the tip of the tongue begins to swallow by lifting to that ridge behind the top front teeth. Parents, if you're listening, just put your tongue right up on that gum ridge behind your top front teeth. They close their lips and they initiate the swallow from there. So if you would take a swallow of liquid, you would feel your tongue lifting up and then moving the liquid back from that place. That that a mature swallow begins to be seen intermittently at around 12 months. They okay. also use um, the lips and the cheeks to, con- to control food in the mouth. They take bites up through a soft cookie with their front teeth, and they drink with swallow after swallow from an open cup if the parent's helping them hold it, or if they hold it, they might have some spillage. A recessed lid cup, which is a cup that has a little bit of, has a lid that goes into the cup. So they can actually, it's not a sippy cup. The lid goes into the cup so the child can use it more like an open cup. They might have a little spillage with that kind of cup, but it's a very good cup to use at this time. And also a straw cup can be used with no spillage um, during this period. Okay. So do you so want me to... Go ahead. Yeah. 
Go ahead. I was going to say, so Question. that's the 12 to 15th month period, which sounds like it's it's when they really start to refine what they're doing and their feeding skills resemble the adult, what we see in adults. Right, exactly. Okay. And uh, then in the 12 to 18 month period, I can tell you, you know, what foods you can feed them. Do you want me to do that now? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. okay. During the 12 to 18 month period, Children can be served chopped table foods, including soft meats. And here's when, where you can introduce your fish, but I have to emphasize, no bones. <laughs> Double um, and parents, triple check that, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Parents, if they think the fish has bones, they should pick through it with their fingers and make sure there's no bones in it. Um, parents should also avoid giving foods that are round, Still, like this is 12 to 18 months, like hot dog pieces or whole grapes. This is the time when pediatricians often often recommend that parents introduce milk, usually around 12 months. Um, And then bottle weaning is happening during this time. And you and I are going to talk about the whole process of drinking in a little while. So we'll, we'll get into the details. But Bottle weaning actually begins around six months. Now, you don't take it away, but it begins because we begin to introduce open cup and straw experiences as part of the bottle weaning process starting at six months. And then gradually over time, we get the kids on cups. And then by by 12 to 15 months, we have usually weaned our child from the bottle. Okay, so in that 12 to 18 month period, in terms of the foods that we're giving children, we can we can start with chopped table food then and soft meats, and avoiding mm-hmm. things like hot dog pieces and grapes. Um, it's a mm-hmm. time when we can start introducing uh, excuse me introducing milk. Um, and you had mentioned bottle weaning, so slowly um, um, keep uh, bringing them off the bottle bit by bit and, and introducing them to cups and such. Yeah, usually by 15 months. And also, parents, you know, we had talked last time about introducing other foods. So go back to the other interview and listen because you can, there are a lot of other foods that can go in this 12 to 18 month period that you introduced earlier, like soft strips of food that kids can take bites of and those kinds of things. So, you know, go back and check that. Right, and that's that's the feeding 101, what the baby food right. charts don't tell you, and that's that's on the kidsatoz.com website, um, and it's also on our website on uh, Blog Talk Radio, where we're broadcasting right now. So, okay. great. Then uh, yeah. let's talk a little bit more about the 15 to 18 month period. Yeah, the 15 to 18 month period, I don't have a lot to say because children, again, are just refining their skills. So they're doing everything they've been doing up to this point. Some of the new things that you'll see is they scoop food with a spoon. Um, They might still bite on the cup rim of the open cup while they're drinking. That's very normal because the jaw is still working on developing stability at this time. So you might see them bite down on the cup rim while they're drinking. That's still okay. And they, they chew and they manage food in an increasingly mature manner. So, again, just go back and check on all the things you've introduced up to now. Um, do you want me to go on and talk about the rest of feeding? Yeah, sure. Okay. During the 18 to 21-month period, the child really has good control of swallowing, 
so we'll hear less of the coughing and things going on um, that we might have heard before when they were learning to manage foods. Uh, parents can serve chopped table food to include many meats. Here's where your raw vegetables can be introduced safely. And again, you're not going to leave your child by themselves with their foods. Hopefully, feeding and eating is a social experience where people are eating together. So especially when you're introducing a new food, like your child's never had a raw carrot before, you're not just going to hand it to them and, you know, go off. You're going to be there with them. And then hard cookies. You know, it's funny because the biter biscuits and the Zwieback toast, which often people consider um, teething biscuits, they're actually hard cookies. So this is when kids can manage hard cookies well. 18 to 21 months, and then by 24 months, your child has the same feeding skills or should have the same feeding skills you do. They can bite through a hard cookie with ease, and the key word here is can. They can chew with their lips closed. You know, they may not always chew with their lips closed, but they can. They can't. They use mature chewing patterns like you do and I do. So their tongue is taking food back to the back molars. They're chewing it. Then the tongue is co- collecting food from all over the mouth, bringing it to the center of the mouth for the swallow. Um, they can manage foods cut into bite-sized pieces or pieces that they bite off. If they take a bite, they should be able to manage whatever they bite off. And they can now drink from an open cup using one hand without spillage. So that's pretty much 12 months to 24 months of feeding. Okay. Um, yeah. So you, you said something that resonated with me about eating together, and, of course, there's a safety issue involved there. We don't want children trying new foods um, where there could be some choking um, dangers. But you had mentioned on your last show, too, about parents modeling, modeling how yes. enough to eat. Is that the case? Oh, absolutely. I really feel very strongly that people need to eat together. I mean, I know it's not always possible in our society where people are on the run and and maybe, you know, um, you can't always eat every meal together. But if children never see people eating, you know, with we talked about mirror neurons, that's how kids learn to do things, by seeing other people do them, then they do it. Plus, Eating together has, is a whole social experience where people are communicating and talking about their lives. So, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's crucial, it's very important that people eat together and that they don't eat on the run all the time. Yeah, I agree. And from that communication aspect, I'm a speech pathologist as well. I'm not a feeding specialist. I'm more of a language and cognitive person. Um, So, yes, that togetherness at family time is really critical for um, language development, intellectual development, and and the rest. Um, Right. And and grocery shopping, too. We talked about grocery shopping. Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) I love it when I see parents, you have to grocery shop, right? talking to their children in the grocery store, giving their children a choice of two things. Does it really matter if they pick the broccoli or green beans? They get the choice. Both are healthy choices. So, you know, getting kids talking about food. And there's even research about obesity these days where kids who are involved in the food preparation process are less likely to become obese. So I think kids should be involved in shopping, preparation, and then, of course, 
imagine the pride that would come along with a family meal if the child had been involved with all of the preparation for it. Yeah, that's that's an important yeah. and big part of of the whole picture because we want to engage really every aspect of development. Right. Um, so let's talk a little. We've been talking about eating, um, and uh, which is important, of course. But there's the other side of the coin, so to speak, regarding drinking. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, as we said in our previous interview and in, in our discussion, we just had 12 to 24 months in feeding. Learning to drink from bottles, open cups, other cups, and straws is part of the developmental feeding process. And most parents don't get to hear about this because they don't have the information feeding therapists have. Um, So, uh, you know, I'd love to talk about this more. You know, we can start with bottles and then go on to different cups. You can just guide it with your question. Okay, so um, maybe we can talk about bottle use and what best practices are um, and perhaps um, instances that would be considered misuse or pitfalls where bottles are concerned? Sure. In Chapter 2 of my book, um, the parent uh, professional book, Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That, I give parents detailed information about bottle and breastfeeding. I begin by having parents observe their baby's mouth movement Then I instruct them in the best practices I know for breast and bottle feeding based on my experience, um, you know, with parents and and also my own experiences. Um, The best positioning for bottle feeding is to hold the baby's body, even a newborn, at a 45 to 90 degree angle. So in other words, we don't want to lie babies down to feed them, even from birth. And this is because of the location of the eustachian tube. The eustachian tube is that little tube that goes back from the back of the nasal area and and upper throat area, and it runs horizontally to the middle ear space behind the eardrum. Babies who are fed lying down, and a lot of parents start out this way because, you know, they're little babies (laughs) and this is what they see people do, Babies who are fed lying down are at increased risk for middle ear problems, including ear infections, because there is an increased chance that fluid can run into the eustachian, eustachian tubes uh, while the baby's lying down. Um, so any questions about that before I talk about a bottle feeding method? No, but I, I think that's, that's a, a good um maybe visual for the parents to think about is that um, that tube won't drain if the baby's at that flat angle. And so it's that 45 to 90 degree angle um, from their lap or from their floor, um, from that flat plane, so um, that fluids can drain. And, yes, we want to avoid those middle ear infections because they won't hear as well if they have fluid in their ear, and that can impact how well they develop their speech and their language skills. So that's an important, I think, thing to think about as well. Right, and and most importantly, when you think of gravity, gravity is a constant force. So if you have a baby lying down and then the eustachian tubes are running horizontal, the chance of fluid actually getting into those eustachian tubes is greater. And so if you put the baby's ear above the mouth, so even if you're not so good, if you don't remember your geometry, about 45 and 90-degree angles, if you think when you're feeding the baby, just have the ear above the mouth. 
and then you're going to put the bottle in more straight horizontally. So moms and dads, you need to get yourself comfortable. Get a pillow behind your arm so that you can hold the baby up in your arm without you being uncomfortable. Um, We can talk about some bottle feeding. And this is just bottle feeding. We're not talking about breastfeeding right now. Um, that's a right. whole different um, story. <laughs> okay, so, right. And, but, so, right, we're concentrating right now on bottle feeding, um, and there's a number of different methods as I understand it. Um, so right. maybe we can talk about the different methods of bottle feeding there are. Yeah. The one I really like and a lot of lactation consultants like if a child has to be uh, bottle fed, you know, as a supplementation to breastfeeding is called paste bottle feeding. Um, in paste, Bottle feed, and there's a book about this. Um, in paste, and I have, I also have everything listed in my book for how to do it. So you, you know, you you can just refer there. In paste bottle feeding, you use a slow flow bottle nipple, and the baby is positioned upright as we discussed. Doesn't have to be straight upright, just ear above the mouth. The bottle is horizontal to the baby's facial area. You stroke the baby's lips with the bottle nipple because that helps to bring in, remember we talked about that rooting reflex last time. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the baby opens the mouth, you roll the bottle nipple into his or her mouth. And then if you're feeding a newborn, after four or five suckles, you actually tip the bottle and then give the baby a, not a big break, just a break, and then bring the bottle back up and let the baby start sucking again. As the baby gets older, the baby's sucking births are going to get longer. You know, and I have this listed in a checklist. And then, you know, you won't have to do so much tipping of the bottle. But initially, one of the things I see is a lot of parents don't know how to give the baby a break. And so we're talking about just the newborn here. It's four to five sucks, tip the bottle, then it's not long go back to four to five sucks, or, or observe what your baby's rhythm is on the bottle. And um, the baby will learn to take his or her natural. But what you're learning here, and I have a whole section in my book about this, you're learning to follow the baby's hunger cues. Because a lot of parents aren't sure when the baby's hungry, when the baby's full, you know, um, and what the baby's body is telling them. So I, I put a section in the book about that. Um, in my book, I, do you have any questions about that? Um, you know, I, it just occurred to me, I wonder, are there also, when you're drinking, you have to coordinate swallowing with breathing. Does pacing yeah. them have any in, any play here with that? It helps to help coordinate the suck-swallow-breathe synchrony. And um, I think we mentioned in the last interview that the nutritive suck when a baby's sucking is about one per second, whereas if okay. your baby's sucking twice per second really fast, they might not be getting the nutrition from the, bo- from the bottle. Okay, so, so would yes. you repeat that so that's clear? Yeah. Yes. There, there, this, is, this pacing has to do with suck-swallow-breathe synchrony, and the suck-swallow-breathe is about, or the suck is usually about one per second, you know, so one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, about one per second for what we call a nutritive suck. And then so where they're getting sucks, enough nutrition? Where they're actually getting the fluid, right, 
Exactly. Okay. Where they're getting the fluid from the bottle. Okay. Whereas a non-nutritive suck is about two per second. That's where they use, where they just suck sometimes because they want to suck for comfort. And but babies won't be getting the liquid from the bottle if they're sucking really fast like that. It's called a non-nutritive suck. Okay. So we ideally we want to see them doing about one suck per second. Second. And four or five sucks in the newborn, and then pretty quickly as they get older, they'll do more sucks in a row in terms of your patient. Okay. okay. So four or five sucks, and then we tip the bottle up, and then back right. in for four or five more sucks. And yeah. as they get older, um, those the number of sucks would increase. It's just a slight tipping just to give the baby a break. And then, and you'll, you know, parents, you'll see you know, what your baby's natural rhythm is. So four or five for a newborn, but over time it gets, you know, it gets to be more and more, you'll see. Okay. Okay. Um, so all right. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little more about bottles, and then we can move on, okay? Um, okay. In my book, I, I talk about how to find an appropriate bottle nipple, how to, because there's so many out there. And just because a bottle nipple looks like a breast, it doesn't work like a breast. In fact, bottle feeding is more like open cups. Sorry, erase that. I always have to erase something. Bottle <laughs> feeding is very different than breastfeeding. And breastfeeding is more like open cup feeding mechanically. So bottle feeding, people think, you know, just because I make a bottle look like a breast, but it's like breastfeeding, but it's not the same. So bottle feeding is a very different process mechanically than breastfeeding. So finding an appropriate bottle nipple, I talk in my book about helping parents to find them because they're changing all the time. Um, how to help the baby get a good latch on the nipple, if they're ni- bottle nipple, if they're not doing that. What to do if liquid is flowing too fast or too slow. I also help parents try uh Think about what to try if a baby is having trouble feeding. And then, as I said, I give them information about what their baby's bodies are communicating. Um, There's also information in the book about nutrition and appropriate hydration. Um, I'm not against bottle feeding. You know, I just talked a little bit about breastfeeding a minute ago and it being more like open cup drinking, and that's a whole other topic. Um, right. Whereas bottle feeding is a different process from breastfeeding and open cup drinking. Um, I feel it's a parent's choice to bottle feed, um, you know, a mother's choice whether to breastfeed. But I am going to tell you that breastfeeding is superior to bottle feeding based on the research we have. And based on research, here are some of the advantages of breastfeeding. Uh, improved overall face, mouth, tooth, head, body, and speech development. All of this has been shown in our research. Um, breastfed children are healthier and have fewer respiratory illnesses than bottle-fed children. And if you think about it, no other animal is bottle-fed unless there's a medical reason or the mother is unavailable. So I'm not judging you parents who choose to bottle-feed because we live in a, a different social situation um, than, you know, many animals who breastfeed their children. 
although I do have a preference for breastfeeding, but in the book I really do talk a lot about how to do appropriate bottle feeding if that's what you're choosing to do because sometimes it's what parents need to do. They're working or, or for whatever reason. Yeah, it's, it's you need to consider everything, and I think it should be a pleasant experience also, and if mom is having a hard time with breastfeeding and it's unpleasant or she becomes irritable or isn't available at points through the day, um, like you said, it's it's a it's a parent's choice, um, and right there are no judgments here, and you have to do what's overall no. best for your child. Um, so I right. like that you you brought that up, all that up, and um, the other interesting thing that you said that struck me was um, the misconception, perhaps, that just because a nipple looks like a breast, that it's akin or very similar to breastfeeding, but it is actually quite different. So that's me. No, and that's um, been, that was surprising right, yeah. for me to learn. <laughs> and that's been shown in research. And there yeah. are bottles. That the last thing you want, that's why I like the paste bottle feeding, the baby more upright, the bottle more horizontal, because then and, and rolling the bottle nipple in, letting the baby really help control this process because a lot of bottles are very fast in terms of their flow and they're too fast. And you hear a lot of coughing and high-pitched gulping sounds. And, I, you know, I mentioned that in the book, that you really don't want to hear any of that. You really want a nice suck-swallow-breeze synchrony that it's actually pretty quiet and pleasant. <laughs> Okay. So what about as children get older, and how, how should they graduate from the bottle to cups and um, and what have you? What, what's best there? Sure. I have a checklist in my book um, on bottle and breast weaning. It's in Chapter 6, and I'm going to give you the highlights of it right now. Uh, between four and six months of age, parents should be introducing their babies to sips of liquid from an open cup, and this would be sips of formula, breast milk, or if their pediatrician says it's okay, you know, always work with your pediatrician, but if your pediatrician says it's okay, you can use stage one baby foods thinned with some boiled water if your pediatrician says it's okay. Most of the time, pediatricians are waiting until six months, and I'm, I'm most comfortable with that because we usually don't give babies any extra water until six months of age. Um, Between six and nine months of age, parents continue to provide open cup experiences. So, you know, just that open, nice wide mouth open cup, sips of that. And they can also um, begin to teach straw drinking with the same liquids we just talked about, breast milk, um, formula, stage one baby foods thinned with water, um, and the straw drinking is taught using a, what we call a straw bottle, and I'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about straws. Okay. Then between 9 and 12 months of age, parents continue open cup drinking and straw drinking experiences and can introduce the recess lid cup, and we, we, we described that already. It's a, a lid that fits into the cup itself so that the cup doesn't spill so readily, uh, has a lid, but the liquid will spill into the lid so the child can drink it. It works more like a, a regular cup. And then fewer bottles are offered throughout the day. Um, between 12 and 15 months, the bottle is only given at nighttime, and that's before bed. And I want to emphasize with the child sitting up. 
Um, bottles should never be given in bed for the reasons we discussed earlier. We don't want babies or people, lie, or children rather, lying down with bottles um, in bed at, because of the station tube uh, location. And then most children are weaned from the bottle by 15 months, while breastfeeding may continue longer, two years or, you know, whatever the parent, the mom, feels like she's going to do. Um, you know, I, I had a comment about um, the bed, bottles in bed. Um, when I was working primarily in early intervention, which is that birth to three-year um, developmental range, um, or actually through preschool, too, where I was working, um, what I noticed a lot of kids on my caseload would have what we called tooth rot. And oh, yeah. as I understood it, is that they would be put to bed with milk in their bottle and the sugars from the yes. milk would yes. rot the teeth away. Because so that was, you see um, the... Mm-hmm. Right. right. Go, go ahead, finish. Yeah, so, no, but that was... Um, we would always have a few kids here or there who had a, a big brown tooth up in front. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. that was an area um, that we found also to be problematic if you're putting your child to bed with a bottle. Right. When With bottle feeding, you use a young, immature... Uh, sucking pattern and that tends to leave liquid lie around the mouth and that and we'll talk about that and when we talk about sippy cups too uh, when liquid lies around the mouth that's when you tend to get gum disease and tooth rot okay which is can't be fun <laughs> no so great. another no, another good it's argument a, mm-hmm. it's a big dental bill you know plus it's not yeah. healthy we know if our mouths aren't healthy then the rest of our bodies aren't healthy Right, right. Um, so there, there are lots of good reasons to um, let them finish that bottle, clear their um, <laughs> mouths before they, they right. really hit the hay. So and move, uh, on, talk about and move on to the cups and, and straws instead of bottles, you know, appropriately. Right, and, and that's the magic word that I wanted to get to next was straws. What can you tell us yeah. about your thoughts on using straws with children? Sure. As you know, I think straw bottles should be introduced around six months of age. In my book, I have a, an eight-step process to help parents teach their children to drink from straws. Um, I tell parents how to make or buy straw bottles, but basically a straw bottle is a flexible, squeezable bottle, kind of like a honey bear. You know, the honey bears you can squeeze mm-hmm. or no honey in them. <laughs> and then you make a straw out of plumbing or refrigerator tubing that goes into the honey bear. You can buy these already made. Uh, Therapro sells them. TalkTool sells them. Or you can make your own. I tell you in the book how to make them. Um, so that's the uh, straw bottle. What you do with that straw bottle is you put thickened liquid in it, like stage one baby food thinned with water, and then you squeeze the bottle, you squeeze the liquid up so that it rises into the straw. Of course, you don't want to do this in your baby's face <laughs> because you don't want to squirt <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> and then the straw is just placed on the baby's lips. And I emphasize that. And this, you can do this with a six-month-old, a seven-month-old, whenever you're ready to teach straw drinking. You don't want that straw into the baby's mouth onto the tongue or else they'll drink from it like a bottle. And we don't want that. We just talked about that. So when we teach straw drinking, squeeze the liquid up into the straw, let the child take one sip at a time initially, 
from the straw that you place just on just on the lips. Before you know it, your baby will be drinking swallow after swallow from a straw. Um, and so, so once you, they get the hang, go ahead. I was going to say you had mentioned what is it that you don't want them to do so it's not like the bottle? Oh, yes. You don't want to place that straw. So you've got this, like, um, honey bear, and you've got the plumbing tubing coming out of it, which makes a very nice straw. You just want the plumbing tubing to be short and just fit on the child's lips so they can, you know, suck and take one sip at a time. Because by this age, you know, by six months when they're learning this, they can bring their lips closed. Or I even talk about how you can help your child learn to suck in the book if, if that's a problem for them. But we don't want that straw way into the mouth onto the tongue because otherwise they use it just like a bottle nipple. And so they're not really learning to drink properly from a straw. Okay. So you okay. start by giving the baby one sip from... Is that clear? <laughs> yep. Did I make it? Okay, good. You start yeah, it was by always clear. I just, you know, I think it was always clear first, but sometimes there's big takeaways that I like to repeat yeah. um, to make sure we get them, <laughs> we get those in. Yeah, and I think that is a big takeaway because a lot of times the parents will teach straw drinking but let the straw hang out really far into the mouth. And that's not what we want. We want just the lips using the straw. So you start by giving the baby one sip from the straw bottle at a time until the baby gets the hang, you know, of sucking liquid from a straw. And it usually doesn't take all that long. So between 9 and 12 months, many babies are able to drink from regular straw cups on their own. And the biggest problem that we have is packaging in the grocery store in terms of straw cups. Now, the, the cup manufacturers have listened to the feeding therapist in that they have made straw cups smaller. So even a 9- to 12-month-old may be able to hold the straw cups that are available. But if you read the packaging, it says two years on the straw cup. But we want our 9- to 12-month-old kids drinking from straw cups, if at all possible. You had men- yeah, you'd mentioned uh, sippy cups earlier. Um, they're a very popular product in our society. So I'd love for us to talk about uh, your thoughts on sippy cups with children. Sure. Well, I prefer straw cups because sippy cups are used more like bottles. Back to the same idea of the straw, if the straw is placed too far into the mouth onto the tongue, uh, the same thing happens with the sippy cup. Now you've just really replaced a bottle nipple with a spout. So when you observe a child drinking from a sippy cup or a spouted cup, what you'll often see is a front-back, front-back, jaw-like movement similar to the ch- what the child used when drinking from a bottle. However, if you watch a child drinking properly from a straw, where the straw is just placed on the lips, lips sorry, you'll see up-down, up-down jaw movement like we use for sucking. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, Drinking from a sippy cup is not a very mature drinking pattern. That's one of the issues. Um, And as we discussed earlier, children begin to demonstrate that mature swallow where the tongue tip lifts uh, to initiate or start the swallow on that gum ridge. You can all feel that. Put your tongue tip up there behind your top front teeth. That's where you start your swallow. And you do that around 12 months of age. You're starting to do that intermittently for all foods and drinks when you swallow. 
Um, so if the spout is placed in the mouth, the tongue tip cannot come up to initiate the mature swallow. And immature swallowing patterns is back to your bottle drinking and tooth rot. Um, immature swallowing patterns often leave food and liquid lying around the mouth, which can lead to tooth decay and gum disease. And this is one reason many dentists don't recommend sippy cups. Okay, yeah, that makes good sense. But um, then, so it does make good sense. Um, but we live in this society where we're all overextended or doing lots of things or having something contained in a sippy cup can be convenient and lets a family maybe do more activities with their children. What's How can we reconcile um, this problem? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to say this at, at, toward the end of this uh, little comment here again. Um, there's a balance. So, you know, if parents feel they need to use a sippy cup in certain situations, I mean, no problem. The biggest problem with sippy cups, knowing that they don't promote mature swallowing, is that we see kids just using them constantly and all the time. Um, so as far as bringing about tooth decay and stuff, that's, that's an issue. But today, fortunately, the cup manufacturers are listening to the feeding therapist. They contact us and they ask us for our input, which is really good. So you can find no-spill straw cups that are small enough for a nine-month to a one-year-old. Um, even if they're labeled two years of age, you as a parent can make that decision. If you think it's small enough for your child to hold, um, then you can go forward with it and give it a try. Um, the most you'll lose is having one that your child can't use they're a little bit bigger. But if it looks small enough, and there are smaller ones now, um, you know, consider that, no, a no-spill straw cup. Um, therefore, if parents don't really want to use sippy or spouted cups, they can choose not to use them. Um, if they do choose to use them, as I just mentioned, I suggest limited use of sippy or, or straw cups. Um, you know, and also realizing that it's important for children to have experiences with all types of cup and straw drinking for good mouth development. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk about your website and some of the other things you do, but I, I had some questions that just popped in my head sure. about um, what if there's a problem, if a, ch if a parent suspects a problem, um, who do they go to? And we had mentioned um, the types of food and picking up things with their fingers. Um, what about quantities of food? Um, I've seen children sometimes really stuff their mouths. Um, right. Um, what, why did, would they do that, and does that indicate something that parents mm -hmm. should take note of and, and act upon? Uh, so if we could just address that a little bit. Um, sure. And that really probably would be a whole other show, perhaps, but it if you could touch upon mm -hmm. that. Sure. Well, you know, I used to think um, that children don't overfill their mouths because it, they needed the sensory input. They were looking for more information from the food. And then I started looking at the swallowing patterns they were using when they did this. And if you overfill your mouth, you're going to use an unsophisticated or immature swallow. So a lot of kids who overfill their mouths aren't using the most sophisticated movements in the mouth that, you know, that they could or should be using for their age. And we talked all about that. 
um, in these two segments what those skills were that we're looking for. And like I said, mm-hmm. there's checklists in my book. Um, if the parent really feels that this is a problem, the first place they need to go is, of course, to their pediatrician. Your pediatrician is always your starting point. And then to a feeding therapist. And last show we talked about who feeding therapists were and how to find them. And I have a lot of specific information on teams that contain them and all of that also in the book. Great. Great. So, um, and you probably have, as we've mentioned, a lot of information on your website um, and the networking program that you have that's both for families and, and professionals. So that's yeah. called Ages and Stages. And I actually have that on the, on the show's website, kidsatoz.com. It's also on the description on the Blog Talk Radio website, so they can access all that. But let's talk a little bit more about uh, what you're doing to provide resources on on feeding and speech and mouth function for families. Right. Our mission at Ages and Stages is to provide the best possible feeding, speech, and mouth development information for families and professionals. We do this through blogs, Q&As, and other formats. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of free information. You even allowed us um, for our featured Q&A this month to put a transcript, basically, of our conversation, you know, um, last time. So we just want to get as much information out there for parents, uh, not in an overwhelming way, but kind of topically so they can look some of these things up. For example, we have a blog or a Q&A, I can't remember which one it is, about choking which has come up in both of these, you know, discussions you Mm -hmm. and I have had. Our goal is to prevent feeding speech and mouth development problems when possible by helping parents keep their children on track developmentally through the application of evidence-based information. There's so much information out there, but it's not all evidence-based. As a speech-language pathologist, I've worked with many children with disabilities, Um, But I've noticed also that many parents of typically developing children just don't have the information to keep their kids on track. And if they had it, they would. So that's what you and I are, you know, helping to provide here. Um, You already said, yeah, about the website that you have the information. So that's where, you know, parents can go. There's there's also book guides to the parent professional book. Uh, Nobody ever told me or my mother that. Uh, everything from bottles and breathing to healthy speech development, there are guides based on age and topics. So if you have a one-month-old, you just have to look at the information for a one-month-old. If you only want to look at bottle feeding, you just have to look at the information in the book about bottle feeding, and the free guides help you do that. Yeah, it's very helpful. And, again, that's agesandstages.net. And, um, yeah, the book is really well. I actually have it in front of me right now. It's really nice pictures. The paper is great quality. And it is. You could just go to the section that you want to get some quick information, use it, and then put it into action. So that's, that's right. really it's a really wonderful resource. Thank so, you. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and so you've, you've also, in addition to being a practitioner, um, you also train um, other speech pathologists and other professionals. Maybe you can talk to us about those projects in case we have some professionals listening sure. um, where that might be helpful. Yeah. On the website, I have a number of journal and popular articles also that I just didn't mention for parents, families, and professionals. You can find them there. But my current project that I'm really excited about 
is an e-course on the topic of newborn and infant mouth development, and it's entitled Everything You Need to Know About a Baby's Mouth for Good Feeding, Speech, and Mouth Development. Uh, it's not up yet, but I expect that it will be up by December 1st. Uh, the course is particularly useful for new parents because it talks about avoiding the many pitfalls that occur during the first year of life. We talked about those pitfalls last time. Um, and um, as we discussed last time, a significant amount of mouth development occurs in that first year of life, particularly in the first six months. This is when the mouth and nasal areas are being formed for life, and many children, and I you know, I'm not condemning bottle feeding, but particularly those who are bottle fed will develop what, what we see as high, narrow palates. The palate is the roof of the mouth. And if it, we discussed this last time a bit, if that roof of the mouth becomes high and narrow, then the nasal airways can become smaller. And small nasal airways can lead to upper respiratory problems, including sleep apnea. And a lot of parents are getting tuned into this. The dental profession is getting tuned into this. Um, and so my goal would be to help parents keep, you know, the mouths on track so they don't run into this problem. Because what will happen later on is, and so the e-course is about infant mouth development. But what will happen later on is then the parents will have to get orthodontic work and dental work to have those palates spread back out. So while the e-course was originally developed as continuing education for professionals, it is presented in such a way, I was very cognizant of this, uh, that parents and caregivers can understand it and benefit from it. Um, so all, all the information on my project can be found on my website. Okay. Um, yeah, that's super, and I like that. It really could benefit professionals or parents. Um, right. Uh, so that's, and, you a know, real, this, that's a really this, great feature. Right, this course itself, the first one on infant mouth development, um, you know, I, I geared it with the details for professionals, but those parents who really want to understand how to keep their, their kids' mouths in shape, uh, this gives them the details they need. Right, okay, great. So um, we're coming toward the end of the show, and how I always like to end is with, we had mentioned before, some solid takeaways. Um, so I always like to ask the guests, their, their favorite advice for parents, and we call it the five fabulous facts for families. So what, what is your, um, your favorite advice to give parents? Okay. So here's some overall take-home points um, that I'd like to say to parents. First of all, work with your child's pediatrician, but don't expect the pediatrician to know everything about every topic, as he is your child's general physician, or he or she. Always speak with the pediatrician about methods and resources you're using. In this interview, I'm giving you educational information, not medical advice. Get your medical advice from your child's pediatrician and other doctors. The third one is be proactive and informed by getting the information you need when you need it from accurate resources. So, for example, my book is based on developmental literature, okay? It's not my, like, there are some of my opinions in there, and I tell you when it's my opinion. But I give you information based on the best developmental literature I could find. 
as you know, it's not a cover-to-cover cover read. You use it by looking up information by age and topic when you need it, and the free guides will help you. The fourth one is there are many great resources available to parents. My book is not the only one out there. In fact, in my book, I created an annotated bibliography that describes those many, many other resources so that if you as a parent are looking for something on a topic, you can go to that annotated bibliography and maybe find what you're looking for. We also have an ever-expanding list of useful websites and companies on our own website. And, of course, um, Kids A to Z and this radio blog, they're all listed there because we're very excited, Teresa, about the work that you're doing. We think this is a really important um, resource for parents and professionals. And I finally... <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, I just can't say enough about it. I mean, you are really helping us get information to parents that they might not otherwise be able to receive. And then finally, it's overwhelming to be a parent these days. You know, parents, let, you know, don't place guilt on yourselves. Um, I don't want to place guilt on me. If we don't know information, <laughs> guilt is a useless emotion. So just because you might be hearing something in this interview that you say, oh, my goodness, I didn't do that. Just know there's so much information out there. It's overwhelming. And so we're trying to help you filter through some of those things. Um, so the other thing you don't have available to you uh, as parents many times is your own parent available to help you through the parenting process. It used to be that people stayed together in family groups, you know, living in the same area, and grandmoms could help moms and, you know, so forth and so on. That's not ha happening these days. So you often have to go out and research the best information you can find about child rearing. So I encourage you as parents um, to trust your own intuition and judgment when making decisions about the methods you choose. And then um, you do this after you've done your homework, of course, in finding the best possible resources, and then running it by speaking to your pediatrician, um, you know, to see what makes sense for you and your child. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you kind of recapped your five fabulous facts right there, but um, there is a lot of information. You do want to inform yourself, um, but communication is critical with, with professionals, and your pediatrician is that, that person on the front line. Talk with them. They can direct you to um, uh, specialists need be, and always communicate them to let you know what is going on so everyone can make um um, informed decisions that are that are the best possible. But um, Diane, thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Again, I learned tremendously. I really hope that the audience is as well. And again, all of Diane's information um, is on the description for today's show on the website. So that's um, www. Um, at, oops, sorry, www.kidsa-to-z.com. So that's kidsa-to-z.com. And anytime, parents and/or professionals, if you have questions that you'd like us to answer on the show, please send us an email, and you can do that at info at kidsa-to-z.com. Again, that's info at kidsa-to-z.com. 
send us your questions um, or suggestions perhaps for show topics. We'd love to um, get that information to you because that's really what we're here for. So um, that's it for for today. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a good one. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.